Hi, welcome to the Plus Up podcast brought to you by Media Plus Advisors. I'm Susan George, one of the partners at Media Plus Advisors, and I'm here today with my two partners, Carly Feinstein and Perry Ann Grignan. Ladies, do you want to say hi? Hello. Hey, Susan. Hi. Hi. So Media Plus Advisors is a consultancy focusing on the media and marketing industry. And on this podcast, we cover different topics that are important to the ecosystem. And today we have a guest, which I'm really excited about. So Carly, do you want to go ahead and introduce our guest? Absolutely. I am just so excited for today's guest. Um, I Allow me to introduce our listeners to Jane Lacker. I'm sure everybody knows her already. She is just kind of like a superstar in the the media marketing advertising business. Um, Jane is admired for her business instincts, collaborative approach, insights, and ability to harness all these skills to meet and exceed client business goals. I just find that to be the truest statement of her. And I'm going to let her give a little background, introduce herself before we start asking her questions. Well, first of all, thank you so much. I appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Um, I do love to talk about ideas and thoughts um, and anything that foments further discussion. So I appreciate this. Um, Who am I? Um, I am... uh, I used to call myself a professional dilettante, and um, that might have been a little disparaging, but I meant it in the best of ways. So I am at the heart of it, a futurist and a strategist, Um, you know, and I have done that in some capacity for my entire career. The basic premise of a futurist is someone who puts the rigor of observation and curiosity to work through application and practice. Um, so a futurist is really, you know, you know, a futurist is just somebody that will tell you what's happening. Um, a strategist will tell you what to do with what's happening. And, and that's a, really with the intersection. Um, and I've had an amazing opportunity to do that across many different industries, um, across many different categories. I've worked on clients from Denon Um, where we looked at trends to understand what kids and parents um, were thinking about so we could impact what their spokes character looked like, all the way to working with a a client like the Salvation Army who needed to better understand millennials so that they could um, figure out how to work with the millennials within their organization. So some very basics. Um, I think that... uh, trends in and of themselves are interesting, but without that rigor of the strategy, without the rigor of how does this impact what I do, how does this impact what my organization does, um, that's that intersection I find really exciting. So that's that's who I am, um, and I've had the opportunity to apply to many things. Well, we are just so excited to have you on our podcast today so that we can talk to you about a bunch of things, hear what's going on in your brain and share that with our listeners. So I'm going to get us started. So not only have you and I worked together at agencies at the same time, but I've been lucky more recently to witness you moderate and speak on a bunch of panels for whether it's the Alliance for Women in Media, she runs it, 4As, the ANA, you're everywhere. So and I'm noticing that trends that marketers and their agencies should be getting ahead of is something you speak so passionately about. 
So before we jump into the trends that are bubbling up for 2021 and 2022 strategies, I'm going to ask you to start by explaining to our listeners why it's so important for marketers to pay attention to consumer and media trends as they develop their marketing and investment strategies. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, It's a great place to start. So let's start with also a definition of a trend. A trend really is a clear pattern or event um, that you can graph on a chart, right? It has a history. It has happened over time. There are multiple data points. um, And we can look at that, right? And we're, we sometimes look way back, sometimes we look back a couple of weeks, um, you know, <laughs> measurement and reporting, we think we're seeing trends. Um, but it tells us that what, it, what a trend is, is an accumulation of signals. And those signals are being given off by humans, what we do in our daily lives, um, how we react to things, what we're talking about. And by following those signals, both weak signals, and they're not weak because they're bad, they're weak because they're just on the fringes, um, and strong signals, we can start planning for our organizations how to respond. And it's basic, you know, when you break it down to something very familiar, it's consumer behavior. And we've been tracking consumer behavior for years. Our toolkits are so much better than they were when we started in this industry. We have been very reliant on what we refer to as syndicated data or self-reported data. And I don't want to knock that. It was the best we had at the time. Um, And if you had a really good strategist and a really good futurist, they also looked at that data with a suspicious eye, right? So they were curious because at the end of the day, we are all human and we like to present our best self. Um, So there's this thing called scripting, right? We we like to think we would do something. Um, So it's not new here, right? So looking at how consumers behave and, and, and whatnot so that we can business plan is no, has not changed. It's just really our toolkit. So we keep doing that. Um, Why should everybody be paying even more attention to consumer behavior now than ever before? We are at an inflection point where we have more data than ever about consumer behavior, not just what they say about themselves or what they script for us, but we can actually see what they are doing. Um, And this is very powerful. And we can talk forever about the privacy of it and all those other implications. But let's just talk about the power of actually being able to understand um, our consumers. I think this, coupled with organization and companies' true desire to be purpose-driven, is actually changing how they look at consumer behavior and data and how they act on it. A lot of the companies we work with are publicly traded. There is a business imperative. You do have to create financial value. But I think companies more and more also want to create um, value in the lives of their consumers and users in a different way. And being able to truly understand a consumer and their mindset allows you to develop products and services and put resources towards things that actually align to that purpose. Um, And we say it 
on a human level all the time. If you follow your passion, you know, good things come, monetary things come, happiness comes. And I think companies are getting are, are really that's that is behind this new emphasis on understanding the consumer. That was a bit of a long answer, but hopefully you follow. No, that's that. great. And, and it's funny. I was uh, chuckling a little bit when you were talking about some of the um, syndicated data and scripting, and it reminded me of being a young assistant media planner in the mid nineties. And, you know, it didn't matter what product I was working on. It's like, so we want people who write to their congressmen and go to the gym two plus times a week. Cause that was like the type of things that you could kind of get it like a more, maybe they're affluent, you know, it, it was just ridiculous. Yeah. Um, so that made me chuckle. Um, but you know, when we were talking about doing this podcast, you know, it was clear that, you know, you're living and breathing consumer and marketer trends and <coughs> talked about some really interesting things that, you know, we really want to get into with the listeners today. So let's start with brand building. You know, for the past few years, we've heard a lot of marketers talking about cost saving and zero based budgeting efforts. And then 2020 happened and, um, you know, Everybody's sick of hearing how 2020 was all about change. Everybody had to pivot, but it's true. You know, uh, you know, not only did marketers have to change what they were doing, it really significantly changed consumer behavior. Um, and one of those was a big shift to e-commerce. So tell us, you know, how, how um, why you think brand building will have a resurgence? Yeah. And, and let me, <clears throat> I'm, I'm going to separate the two a little bit to begin with. I think brand building is going to have a resurgence. And I mean brand building in the Jay Shiat, you know, uh, focused, strategist, um, you know, really robust. What does my brand stand for? Is it a brand of the heart? Um, does it elicit an emotion? And this is a little counterintuitive as we look at the economics of what the time um, frame we're in now, and I'm not an economist, but I'm going to project out that the economy is going to have some challenges in the future. I'm hopefully sarcasm is going to get through on that one. And that we're going to see more people slip below the poverty level. And we're going to see, you know, um, you know, with women not in the workplace, uh, it changes the economies. Um, you know, GDP in countries go down when women are not in the workplace. So, so in general, let's say that everybody, in some way, except the one percent, and is probably going to be touched economically. And if I'm looking at consumer behavior, the one thing I do know is that families and individuals start to make, they start to make decisions, um, more thoughtful decisions about the services, products, and brands they acquire. And when that comes into play, when there's less disposable income, that decision-making goes in two directions. There's a very rational, am I getting the best value? You know, am I paying the least for this? But the thing that happens, and I think gets less um, airtime, is that people really start focusing on quality and how it makes them feel emotionally. Because when resources are scarce, when, when financial resources are scarce, and you are, let's just take a mom, and you're thinking about the products you're going to buy for your family, you have a whole different list of justifications for that purchase. You want to make sure that purchase 
is delivering not just quality and value, but that value can be, I know this product's going to put a smile on my kid's face. And I am in somehow willing to um, pay a few cents more if I know that brand is going to deliver these things that will make me feel good about myself, good about how I provide. And that's very powerful. And that's really where brand building comes back into play. And it's not just about, did I get the coupon, right? So that's almost table stakes, right? We've all figured out how to buy things at the least price, at the lowest price, you know, and the amortization of the world and, and all those things. But now you, you've got these other um, signals that I've been seeing um, as people talk about uh, how they want to continue to provide for their families and we've seen this from history. The never ending possible is always my go-to example. Olive Garden does this so beautifully, right? It, it sets up an opportunity for a family to do something good for themselves, to feed themselves in a way that feels like they are, take, they are giving themselves a treat. Um, and there is also a, um, it is not a monetary string. All those things are really emotional and that's, that's brands. Um, brands, I think um, companies have been very focused on data recently and collecting data and doing a really good job of reaching consumers, of, of knowing who their potential customer is and then getting a, a communication to them it's the promise of personalization at scale. But what that message is, I think has gotten lost a little because brand building is hard, um, which does take us to this e-commerce e world. So getting brands into people's hands has never been easier. And the time period from discovery to purchase is, is completely collapsed upon itself. Um, and we've we saw that the acceleration and adoption of e-commerce people that said, oh, I would never buy food or groceries or or drugs anywhere except in my local store were forced into a situation where they had to figure out how to buy something online or for our elderly population. Um, their kids said, sit tight. I'm going to buy this online and have it delivered to you. And then miracle of miracles, look, food arrived at the door. So huge um, acceleration in the adoption of e-commerce. From a consumer perspective, this is great, right? It's frictionless, it's instant gratification. Um, you can do the thing where you can compare prices. Um, and if you are somebody in our industry today, you should be sure you are following e-commerce. Right. So um, if you are a young planner or media strategist or marketer or brand builder, you need to know about e-commerce, how your brand shows up in e-commerce, how e-commerce works. Um, it encapsulates so many different things. Um, 
Yeah. And that's interesting because I know, you know, back, you know, several years ago was like, if you were, you know, new and young in the business, you needed to know digital, but now it's really much more specific. It's, it's like really having that focus on e-commerce, which is really just so important and just really the future of everything. And e-commerce is so many things, right? So two sides, right? So there's, there's um, ad sales on e-commerce platforms. So if you think about Amazon and Google and, and whatnot, like there's a huge industry um, in terms of ad sales and that's the media aspect of it. Then there's just the huge industry of being a small business and how do I get my product out there? And you're just concerned with whether or not, you know, what, what is the tax that you're getting charged by Amazon in order to get your brand into consumers' hands? And the good news is, is that, well, Amazon is obviously the um, 100-pound gorilla in the room. I said this once before, and I said the 10-pound gorilla, and somebody looked at me and they're like, you know, if the gorilla is 10 pounds, it doesn't really, you know, it's a stuffed animal. And I was like, yes. You're totally right. I meant I meant hundred pound gorilla. Um, but we're seeing beyond Amazon other companies that are growing up around this, Shopify, big commerce, um, that are learning to be the back end engine for other brands. So to tie this back to branding a little bit, and again, it's not about Amazon bashing, but when you buy, a product on Amazon, your thinking is, I'm going to buy it on Amazon. And it comes in an Amazon box. And sometimes you lose the brand in that equation. Some of these other organizations that are creating the back end, which allow you to purchase things online frictionlessly with a payment system, shipping, um, allow a brand to retain their identity. Um, so the box says Saks Fifth Avenue, the box says all birds, um, but you then have the convenience of buying it online. You have the convenience of the back end payment system. You have the convenience of the return policy. Um, so we're going to see that grow as well. Um, and I think that's, again, what makes this a incredibly exciting um, part of the industry that has all these different tentacles um, that you can get into right now. I mean, certainly so. I mean, one of the industries that's really, you know, transformed in terms of consumer behavior this year, uh, you know, has been the healthcare industry. And, you know, can you share a little bit about your forecast there? I mean, and how much does Amazon and companies like that, you know, really play into what we can see on the horizon? Yes, this is a story of good and good of good. Ultimately, of ultimate good. Um, let me uh, date myself significantly. Um, many, 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 many moons ago, I worked for one of the largest uh, healthcare insurance agencies in Australia called Medibank. And they were way, way ahead of the, the curve in wanting to cr introduce digitization into the healthcare system to get their doctors online to get the collection of healthcare data um, somehow organized in a repository so that they could actually use that data anonymized to identify either communities at risk um, and help change behaviors and all that good stuff, right? 
Um, they were re they were really way too far ahead at the time. Um, we are there now. Telehealth telemedicine is again due to COVID um, got its uh, acceleration moment and took people from needing to see a doctor in an office to seeing a doctor or a healthcare professional virtually. And we ripped the Band-Aid off completely, right? And what people that have actually experienced that have found is that it is a very good experience. Um, I can see my doctor. I do not have to get in a car. This is great for the elderly who do not have to get a ride, um, who do not have to find someone to take them. Uh, it has allowed doctors to actually be on time for those appointments, uh, <laughs> I have found personally. And while there are restrictions, um, uh, you know, and there are things you still have to do in person, a lot of what we do doesn't need to be done in person. And you could say that this is a democratization of healthcare in some ways, making it more accessible. Um, the minute I say that, you're going to have people that say, well, that's good for you because you've got high speed Internet and you have good connectivity. Yes, that is 100 percent true. But again, like this will all eventually come like so if we, we take the digital divide off the table and say, but what are the what's the ultimate good in this? And if it allows to free up healthcare system to actually focus on the um, uh, the group that it does not have as much access then you have an ultimate good. Um, telemedicine is going to, to grow. Um, telementalism, telehealth, we've already seen a huge growth. Um, access to applications that help you relax and de-stress. Uh, companies are actually buying them as part of the perks for their employees. And then if I go back to the amortization of the world, you know, they bought, they saw this too, right? Um, Care.com is Amazon. They know that if they can do, apply the same Amazon thought process to healthcare, they can change the expectation of healthcare in America. Now, uh, HIPAA, rules you know i you could barely you couldn't even digitize things at a doctor's office you had to have to write on an actual piece of paper because of hipaa rules and all of that has gone out the window like many things once we find a real convenience for something our value exchange our personal value exchange we're willing to give up a certain amount of data for the convenience of something and we're seeing that now with healthcare online um do i want amazon to own all of my my information probably not um you know what are they doing with that data hopefully they're using it for good but they're also probably using it to sell ad you know ad and in, in, in media on the other side of their business um i think ultimately though access is going to be a net positive in the advancement and evolution of telemedicine and I, not to leave just Amazon this, I'm sorry. I, I would also say, you know, Verizon, and again, full disclosure, I've worked on Verizon in different capacity in my career in three separate occasions. And Verizon was really at the forefront of this too. 
it's not what you hear about when you think about Verizon as a consumer. You you think of you know largest network and all that, but they've got a whole um, department that has been trying to create telehealth for um, in countries where healthcare access is not uh, easy, and they've been bringing doctors to remote areas via technology for many years. So this is you know again this is an, a different kind of adoption of that. That's great. I really just love listening to you talk. <laughs> so I'm going to switch to, I want to talk about generations. I'm a Gen Xer and definitely fit many of the characteristics. Maybe not so much when it comes to the financial maturity I should be at, but definitely in the music I listen to. <laughs> so can you talk a little bit about how marketers need to address uh, things like production, services, marketing from a generational standpoint? Yes. Um, I love talking about generations and what I would like to see is a major change in how we think about generations because the traditional way we talk about generations is at a 20 year, uh, we look at generations and when we talk about generation, it's over 20 years. That's a really long time and this has been silly for a while now um, because with the acceleration and adoption of change, to try to talk about one generation over the course of a 20 year period time period, uh, you've got three different cohort. I mean, it, three, 20, I mean, how many different life stages do you have during that period of time? So disclaimer, gross generalization about generations. Our boomers are, um, they got the vaccine, yay, good for them. And that made an enormous amount of sense, right? So if you look at triage, um, you always, you know, you always triage the the group that needs it the most first, and and our boomers um, were that group. And if you're a boomer and you haven't gotten your vaccine yet, uh, just keep hitting refresh on the uh, vaccine finder. That's what I, that's my advice on that one. But um, there's something like 70 million boomers, right, in the U.S. And then there's something, you know, around 70 million millennials, and those are general numbers. And then Gen X is sandwiched in between. And when we were really strong, we were 45 million. We might be a little bit bigger now. We might be a little bit smaller. And we don't really get a lot of attention from marketers because of our size and because millennials really looked like this great, you know, this, this group that we, we were being able to market to. Um, and they were going to go through the life stages and they were going to have this disposable income. And that really hasn't happened. Our millennials today, even before the pandemic, were making less than the generation, our Gen X generation before them at the same life stage. That's not to say they don't buy stuff and they do and they're great. And, and don't believe anybody that tells you they're not brand loyal because they care about brands, too. Maybe just not the brands that we did, but they have their own criteria. Um, but I, again, my opinion is as we build out and dig out of where we are today, that we need to focus on this Gen X generation. They do have, they're sitting at a level of financial maturity. Um, they are sitting on uh, a little bit more disposable income than either of the other two generations around them. They are taking care of the generation above them and the generation below them. 
So understanding who they are and what their needs are in those roles, I think is crucial to getting our economy back on track. And for an organization, a, a, a brand that's developing services to be focused on, um, which is a weird thing for a futurist to say, because you know you would think that um, as a futurist, I'm gonna say, let's prepare for millennials. Well, we are preparing for millennials when we prepare for Gen X. The top spectrum of millennials are in their 40s. This is where that whole 20 year swath thing comes in. You know, we all think in the millennials, we've got this idea of our head of these 20 something year olds. Um, but we've got people, millennials in, an, in a life stage where they are looking to buy homes and they're going to ask their parents for help for the down payment on those homes. They are their kids are at an age where they're really thinking about, you know, what is the future of education look like for my child in a time period where education is probably the most confusing and 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 the most uncertain because of the pandemic. Um, we should do a whole nother podcast on education with not with me. I have other people that are much smarter about this. Um, so generationally. Generations is still valid when you think about consumer insights, and I will say this also about generations. I like to focus on life stage. When I think about generations, um, I think life stage is much more telling than a generation. You just put that on top. Um, Gen X is a generation who raised their kids by saying you get what you get and you don't get upset. Um, so it tells you about our practicality. Uh, which has helped us obviously during this pandemic. You know, that that's so interesting as a Gen Xer, um, you know, it, it's nice to hear us be a little bit of the focus. I feel like, you know, whenever people talk about generations, it's always been about boomers and millennials. So it's nice to get some uh, Gen X love for ones. And just as a side, my favorite, um, you know, every generation does this. My favorite social media thing I've been seeing lately, my favorite backlash is millennials getting upset that Gen Z is telling them their side parts and skinny jeans are out. Whereas, you know, how many years were millennials like, okay, boomer, and like, you know, saying all these things about uh, Gen X, like disregarding us even. Um, so it's just funny that the, it's it's now their turn. <laughs> Absolutely, Susan. And again, you know, this is the thing that I love about um, strategists and futurists that really aren't using it as a craft. And they come in and they think, uh, you know, young people are re, you know, are are changing the way we look at things, and they're, you know, they're rewriting the rules. And I was like, every young generation does that. It's what they do. Yeah. As a young adult, you know, pre frontal lobe development, your job is to question everything around you. And we've all done it. And that is what keeps moving us forward in, in many ways. So um, from greasers to princess phones to kids on social media, um, we need them to rebel. Yeah. And in that rebellion, they, they challenge the status quo. So, you know, when I hear um, people say, oh, well, this generation challenging the status quo. Yes. So did the last generation. That's what they're <laughs> supposed to do. Now look for the signals. And that's what I say, look for the singles, signals, both weak and strong, because the signals they're throwing off will help us understand where the world is going. And I'd say this, you know, 
there's a generation C, and I'm going to say it now, it's the COVID generation, but I think they are the uh, elementary school kids, right, mm -hmm. um, growing up right now. That that Gen Z group who are making fun of the millennials are probably my, my son, um, who's 18, and they are doing many of the same things we did, which is they are starting to care about the world around them. They are starting to think about um, how things beyond their control, they actually can now have control over. So um, I, I love I love working with young people. Um, I love hearing how they are interpreting the world and yes and then hearing what they think of us and it's always scary that first time when somebody says oh all the people in the room are really old and then you ask them well what do you mean by old and they say 30 and you're like oh, <laughs> oh okay oh that's good, funny good to know that's the bar yeah. <laughs> so, you know, Carly was talking a little bit about generations, um, you know, in identifying herself. So so for myself, you know, I'm a I'm an East Coaster. I live, studied and worked in New York and New Jersey my entire life, um, you know, haven't left really a 40 mile area, um, you know, and I know from uh, marketers and consumers are everywhere. But, you know, the U.S. media marketplace, it's really concentrated with buyers and agencies in New York, LA and Chicago. So, you know, we talked about this a little bit. This this really can be a recipe for bias. Can you talk about how how we think about this and really how it's I think almost the agency folks can think about this and um, addressing this bias when they're really planning work for marketers and consumers that live all over the country? Uh, yes, um, that's uh, a, a, another um, passion point of mine is how do we address our own bias in marketing and media and creativity? So I, we sit um, in a place of an immense power, whether we're a creative agency that is creating the visuals um, for brands and products and clients that people will identify with, hopefully, um, we as media people are deciding to some degree where those uh, images and content will show up and what those look like. But what we don't do a very good job of doing, and we're addressing bias um, in different ways when it comes to diversity and inclusion, but what we really forget about, and I do see it this way, and again, it's a personal opinion, that we tend to sit on the coastlines um, and then, of course, you know, and it, there's a very strong part of our community in Chicago and, and now in, in Atlanta and Texas and, and whatnot. But we forget about um, the middle. And I saw this during the election. You know, we were very much in an echo chamber. Um, we very much, you know, there was a lot of sameness. Um, around the messaging from uh, large holding companies and agencies, whether it was creative or media and, and even some of our clients. And we had an election in this country and um, it was not a slam dunk one way or the other, right? I mean, we really, um, in terms of um, where people's um, headspace is, is split down the middle to a certain degree. And as a marketer, I look at that and I say, wow, the values, this this idea of perception um, is that we've got a country divided in terms of values. And we've got a country that um, 
has a perception problem um, about its neighbors. So as a marketer now, I'm thinking, well, am I bringing my bias to what I'm doing every day? And am I not listening or at least trying to understand this per this group of people who think that my values are different from theirs? And I think because of where we sit, we need to examine that. We need to examine our own bias as we market to the middle. And when I say market to the middle, it doesn't always necessarily mean just marketing to the big square states in the middle, but it's marketing to this um, headspace and perception that they don't feel represented anymore. Um, that what was mattered to them has been pushed aside. And uh, it comes into everything we do, but I think we do have to start by saying, um, is that funny? I, I'm going to tell an anecdote. I'm going to try to keep names and agencies and whatnot. But I was working for a packaged good company uh, in foods, packaged goods. And the creative agency was on a coastline, um, very smart creatives, young, I mean, talented. And the product they were selling was a product that you probably would um, would not be on my shopping list. Um, but is on the shopping list of a very specific cohort. Socio, it, it, it was appealing to a very um, specific socioeconomic group. And in a cab ride to the client, I was listening to these two creatives, um, you know, talking about how they would never give this to their family, uh, all the issues with it, and like why would you ever eat that, and how bad it was. And I was just thinking, wow, you're you're you are missing the basic understanding and empathy in of why this product is actually has value to this to this cohort and and what it means for this cohort because at the core you are bringing your own bias to this and you need to re-examine that so um i think we have a challenge we are, we know the country is split we know that perception is is not aligned so as marketers and media people that have the opportunity to impact this, we need to self-reflect every day on the echo chamber we're in and, and how we are addressing some of these challenges when we, when we decide um, who we're gonna put our dollars with or advise our clients who to put their dollars with. Wow, Jane, I, I feel like we've drained your brain of so many of the most important, you know, trends around brand building and, you know, all sorts of other things, especially around e-commerce and, um, you know, the, the strength of, um, you know, companies like Amazon and some of the, the new back-end players. Did we drain everything? Do you have any uh, additional trends or thoughts that you'd like to share as we wrap up? I, yeah, yeah, of course, please. I get, you know, got a million. Um, no, I would say there's a company that was just brought to my attention called Pharma Packs. And um, I would go look up Pharma Packs because it's really interesting. So, again, this is um, when we see things like e commerce, um, there are so many new businesses that grow from that. Um, Pharma Packs is a really interesting, again, their entire job is organizing the products to be shipped. So logistics, so brand building, 
big emphasis on brand building moving forward. If you are a kid in college right now, um, take a course on logistics. Again, huge, going to be huge, right? Understanding how products move from place to place. How do you source products? Um, how do you efficiently do this? Uh, should your, you know, distribution center, where should your distribution center sit? And if we add on to that, the, another big thing, which is climate change, um, distribution and logistics plays into this as well. Um, because you can immediately cut down on fossil fuels when you don't have trucks driving long hauls. Um, but immediately you eliminate long hauls, you're also eliminating jobs of a certain kind. So I think about that too. I'll tell you the very last thing that I think people should be focused on. And I always end with this whenever I talk and somebody says, what's the last thing you want people to think about? And um, it's, it's one word, it's kindness. And I like to end on kindness because all these other things are possible only when we make room to think about the um, what may or may not be going on below the surface of the people we work with and interact with. And if we can assume and give people the benefit of the doubt, um, I think we can solve almost any problem. Um, so, uh, it's very easy to get passionate about things. It's very easy to get incensed about what we think of things as being unfair. Um, and I like to just flip it a little and say, okay, if I take, if I look at this through a line of kindness, um, what do I need to, what do I need to take into account in order to, to get my point across? So it goes back to what I do for a living, which is being a futurist and a strategist if I can't convince other people to see what I believe is happening, then I'm I'm failing. So I have to also be able to understand how to get my story. Well, we think that you're you're not not failing. You're being extremely successful in, in communicating. You know the the cross between being a strategist and a futurist. And what a lovely way to wrap this up, Jane Lacker. Um, media trend and kindness forecaster. Uh, you know, we want to say thank you to you. And this has been uh, the Media Plus Advisors Plus a podcast. You can visit us at um, www.mediapluseadvisors.com uh, to listen to this and other podcasts. And until next time, thank you.